Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this event today. Um, I'm Jen Murtazashvili. I'm the director of the Center for Governance and Markets here at the University of Pittsburgh. It is a real honor to have all of you with us today for this special, special event. Uh, it is a live uh, podcast recording of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast uh, with our two guests who I'll introduce in a moment. Um, but before we get down to business, I just thought I'd introduce um, our center, our work, and sort of why we're here today. Um, so, very briefly, um, the Center for Governance and Markets is an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary, whatever they're calling it these days, research center uh, located here at the University of Pittsburgh. And our center looks at, we say we study institutional diversity and study obstacles to peace, prosperity, and order around the world. Uh, but I think of our center as a place where we sort of study bottom-up solutions to problems. We are really inspired by the creative solutions that individuals and communities create uh, to overcome collective dilemmas. And so these institutions, these rules, these uh, things that people create um, can come from the top down and they can come from the bottom up. But we're really interested in those really bottom up solutions that people create um, in their communities. So that's sort of the ethos of our center. We've got about 20 faculty affiliates across, I don't know, about 10 different departments here at the University of Pittsburgh, ranging from English, political science, education, law, you name it, we've got them. And so it's a group of scholars and faculty who are dedicated to this issue. We've got a number of uh, resident scholars who are here with us today from all around the world, including many from Afghanistan who have come to join us. We have postdoctoral scholars. So a very diverse group of people working with us here at the university. Now, before I uh, we we get go we before we get going. I just want to introduce a couple of events we have upcoming this week, just so that you're aware of them. We're running three research seminars this semester. One is on the future of law in technology and governance, and that's run by Mike Madison, who's a professor here at the law school. Um, there will be a talk tomorrow online on Zoom at 3 p.m. Eastern, Computational Entities for Regular People is the title of the talk, and that'll be by Carla, Carla Reyes from Southern Methodist University. And then we have an ongoing series called Voices from Afghanistan, and we have a talk on Friday, January 20th, from Bashir Mubashir, who is at American University, and he'll be presenting on the Constitution and Laws of the Taliban from 1994 to 2001, understanding the Taliban's philosophy of governance. And finally, we're running a lecture series on the uses and, produce, uses and abuses of prediction, which is run by Gail Rogers in the Department of English. Fascinating um, uh, set of lectures on uh, prediction, whether that's stock market prediction. I think we're going to look at prediction of conflict. Uh, so join us for those and watch out for them and watch out for all of our events this semester. Okay, so now down to business. So we are here to talk about Shadi Hamid's new book, which is called, you can hold it up, The Problem of Democracy, 
And it is uh, from Oxford University Press. It just came out late last year. And I think it's going to be one of the most important books that's written on sort of the, the future of democracy in the Middle East, U.S. foreign policy. And I think it's something we're going to be debating for a very long time. So we're going to get that debate going today. And so before I introduce Shadi, I want to introduce also Damir Marushic, who is the co-director, co-lead, co-conspirator of Wisdom of Crowds podcast, both Shadi and Damir. And I hope everyone here has had a chance to listen to that podcast. And if you haven't, you must subscribe now, because this event will be recorded as the first live event for Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, briefly about Demir, he is a resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Europe Center. He works on the Council's Balkans Forward Initiative, uh, which is uh, fostering uh, democracy, secure and prosperous Western Balkans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So he's written a lot on U.S. foreign policy and so forth. Okay. Uh, Shadi Hamid, he's a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. He's also an assistant research professor of Islamic studies at Fuller Seminary and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of several books, including one of my favorites, Temptations of Power, Islamists and Illiberal Democracy in a New Middle East, as well as Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Um, and I should just say a little bit about these gentlemen and how I know them. So I would say about five or six years ago, Shadi, I assigned Temptations of Power for my course on political Islam. I love the book. Um, I think it was a, it's a model of scholarship, especially you know, a first book, dissertation book. For me, uh, you know, writing, I was writing my first book as I read yours, and um, I really enjoyed reading it. And, you know, shortly after I read that book and taught it, my students loved it, by the way. Oh. I read this piece by a guy named Demir Marushic, who was the, you were at the time the editor for the National the American, American Interest. Interest, pardon yeah. me, pardon me, the American Interest. And he wrote this scathing critique of U.S. democracy promotion. <laughs> And at the time, uh, I was just going over to Central Asia and I was doing a strategy. I was writing a strategy assessment for the U.S. Agency for International Development on their democracy promotion strategy in Central Asia. I read this piece by this guy named Demir and I handed it out to everyone at the U.S. It was the State Department, all the diplomats. And I said, you got to read this because it's going to shape how you think about these issues. I didn't know that these two knew each other. <laughs> and then one day, you know, I think it was during COVID, uh, there was a podcast featuring the two of them. And I said, that's funny. They really, like, they know each other. This is funny. And not only, so I was like, I really agree with them. And like, this will be really fun. And then you take two people who you really, really agree with. And then you listen to them in a conversation and you find yourself completely disagreeing with everything they have to say. So that's one of the reasons I love Wisdom of Crowds. It's provoked a lot of thought and conversation um, among me and, and my friends and uh, over many years. So I've really enjoyed it. And it's just an honor to have both of you today. So let's get started. Mm -hmm. Demir, I'm going to throw it off to you. Yeah. Well, Jen, uh, far too kind. Thank you so much. Um, also, just, you know, uh, Thank you for the Center uh, for Governance and Markets and the University of Pittsburgh for really helping make this happen. Uh, really just want to also say a big thank you to Brian and Mohammed for helping us navigate the logistics of this, uh, doing a live episode. Uh, you know, first time's always the hardest, so uh, really thanks a lot, guys. And uh, welcome to our listeners at home. Uh, I don't know, it's really exciting, Shadi. First time doing, yeah. it, doing it live like this with actual people in the audience. And 
some joining us via Zoom. Um, They're out from the waiting room, right? Are they with us? <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so look, uh, uh, guys, uh, for all of you here, uh, this is the first time we've done something like this. Uh, we're going to just try and keep the sort of easy flow of the podcast. Um, and really, we want you to take part in it. So, you know, it's an experiment. We're figuring it out as we go along. Uh, but if you have any questions as it's going on, do raise your hand. Just pipe up and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of keep the conversation going that way. That said, you know, if the conversation's going and you want to take it in a completely different direction, we will set aside, I think, 30 minutes at the end. We can then open it up and we can take it anywhere you, where you guys want. So uh, don't feel pressure, but I really do encourage you to just sort of talk to us because that's that's what we do um, on this uh, on this podcast. Um, Basically, you know, Jen's very kind introduction. I mean, you know, what 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 is this podcast? It's 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 about ideas and it's unscripted. It's you know, two of us, uh, good friends, talking about stuff, disagreeing with each other, uh, talking about ideas and first principles. It's it's you know, the sort of catchphrase that we use on this is like, why is it that we believe what we believe? That's the the sort of guiding principle of, of all of this. And let me just say uh, about Jen, I'm just really thrilled that Jen is here with us. Um, on stage and, and doing this podcast. Jen, you have now, I think you're officially our most frequent guest on the podcast, third time, third appearance. And um, and every single time you've been on, like it's been among our most popular podcasts, really just uh, off the charts. It's a real treat. Um, also just wanna plug uh, something else. Jen is launching her own new podcast soon uh, called Alternative Orders. Uh, we will be featuring Alternative Orders on uh, the Wisdom of Crowds page when it officially launches. Um, it's the next step in our own ambition to um, to make Wisdom of Crowds into something bigger, uh, something more ambitious uh, than what it is. It's always been there, this ambition, this idea has always been there, there. but we're really, we're hitting the ground running in this year. So stay tuned for more, uh, and please, yeah, just uh, stay in touch, and, and you'll hear all about that as it comes together. Today, uh, we have a special uh, point of departure for a conversation, um, fans of Shadi, know that he has a new book out. Jen's mentioned and already. Enemies. And Enemies of Shadi. Don't exactly. forget that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. Um, definitely encourage you to pick up a copy, read it uh, if you haven't. Um, and we will have copies, by the way, in the CGM suite. They didn't arrive here on time today. So if you're interested in picking up a copy, come by our office and uh, maybe we can, uh, if we get it in time, we can even get people signed copies. You know? um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and regular listeners of the podcast uh, that have read Shadi's book, uh, I think will recognize a lot of the sort of debates that we've had on the podcast popping up in there. And I have to say, you know, Shadi, it's something that I personally find really gratifying to play a small role in, in, uh, in prodding some of your thinking process. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a really engaging book. Uh, it's engaging in that very Shadi Hamid way, uh, disarming writing, uh, playful, challenging. But it's a, it's a challenging book as well. Challenging and really, I think it challenges some core uh, principles of how we think about things. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very much on brand. Um, so I, I don't know, Shadi, you know, there's lots to talk about. We don't have a script. Um, why don't you kick us off with sort of the answer to the standard book question, right? Yeah. Uh, how'd you come to write it? Why now? Why this book? Yeah, thanks, Samir, and thanks, uh, Jen, for having us. Thanks to CGM for hosting this. Great to be here. I'll make a little plug for Pittsburgh because I've noticed that people from here don't realize how lucky they are. I think Pittsburgh is a beautiful city. I was shocked when I came last night overlooking 
um, out in Washington and you you kind of see this the skyscrapers and the skyline and I found it very striking and why have you guys been keeping this a secret? I mean, why? how come people aren't hyping up Pittsburgh more? And I just feel I've been missing out. Let me just jump in, though. You're from Philly. And that's just, just <laughs> yeah, context, yeah, that's context to all the Pittsburghers here. Yeah, I'm a Pennsylvanian, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's not running for Senate yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, um, yeah, let's get right to the meat of the conversation. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about these questions of why is democracy good? Why do we believe democracy is good if we in fact believe that? And this to me is sort of the fundamental question. It's this, what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes? And you can put bad in scare quotes because part of the problem here is that we as citizens no longer agree on what a bad outcome actually is. We don't even agree on how to assess that reality. And then maybe the second question that's tied to this is, is democracy good because of its outcomes or in spite of its outcomes? And this to me is the fundamental question of our political moment. I think it'll define our political debates for decades to come. It used to be primarily a Middle East question, but now we're asking it pretty much everywhere. Every major democracy is contending with these very foundational questions of how do we actually feel about democracy. Now, I'm very bullish on the democratic idea, and this might seem like an odd time to sing the praises of democracy. I mean, as, as you guys know, there's been uh, a lot of far-right parties and politicians that have done very well in elections over the past six years in particular, including right here at home with uh, Donald Trump. but you can kind of go in a lot of different places. There's a far-right prime minister in Italy now for the first time in the post-war period. Um, in Sweden, out of all places, the largest party in the governing coalition is like a proper far-right party, not like a soft far-right party. It actually has its roots in neo-Nazism and not too long ago, actually. Um, the rise of far-right religious parties in Israel, the BJP in India, um, Bolsonaro, thank God he, he's out, but you know he was around for a while and he might come back in the future, who knows? So these are all things that are worth keeping in mind because they really force us to reckon with this question. Is the fact, does the fact that these far right parties won, does that make us feel like democracy isn't actually good? Does that make us lose faith in the democratic idea because if we assume that democracy leads to good outcomes, then when it doesn't lead to those outcomes, we're gonna be disappointed. And so I would maybe just start by maybe each and every one of you in the audience and you know people listening from home, I think it's good to kind of go back to first principles in terms of how you view the democratic idea. And I think two questions to ask on an individual level are, uh, why do you believe democracy is good? And what do you think democracy is for? Because I think that we just take democracy for granted. And then when you actually push people and you ask them, well, what does democracy mean to you? Oftentimes you'll find they won't give you a clear answer. They'll struggle to answer it because we don't actually push ourselves because we assume, oh, it's democracy, it's good. But um, we have to go a little bit deeper and think of the reasons. Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from the Middle East here because the Middle East in a way is ground zero for democratic dilemmas. Before it was cool, 
right-wing parties were doing very well in elections and sometimes winning outright. And here I'm talking about Islamist parties. <clears throat> so as early as Algeria in 1991, where an Islamist party was on the verge of a massive victory, what happened? The staunchly secular military stepped in, canceled the second round of elections, and that was the end of the Algerian experiment as we know it. But there's a number of other cases, including more recently during the Arab Spring, the Muslim Brotherhood came to power through free and fair elections. And then there was a military coup in 2013. Why did many Egyptians support a military coup? Because they assumed that democracy was going to lead to outcomes they liked. And when they found out that democracy wasn't doing that, they said, well, democracy is pretty frightening. Why? Because it's there's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know who's going to win before they win. And that might sound like an obvious component of democracy, but if the party that might win is a party that you hate, so if you're a secular person in Egypt and you see the Muslim Brotherhood as threatening the identity of the nation, and they're, they believe in religion playing a certain role in public life that you fundamentally disagree with, if they keep winning time and time again, then you're going to say, well, I thought democracy was good in theory, but I don't like what democracy is producing in practice. And I think the U.S. in our own foreign policy, we have this problem, too. Um, oh, democracy will lead to moderate parties, to anti-Americanism going down. When people focus on their own internal things, they'll, they'll be more rational and measured in their politics. This is the so-called pothole theory of democracy, is that when people vote, they'll vote for parties that fix their potholes. As it turns out, the parties that fix their potholes can also be far-right militant parties. So like Hezbollah and Hamas are actually good pothole fixers, as it turns out. But they are also pretty radical and one and both are designated as terrorist organizations. So we got a bit of a bit of a dilemma here. And just like the last thing I'll say to help maybe frame our conversation and to provoke Demir and Jen a little bit. Um, well, we should also just say like Demir and I really we have big disagreements on some of these questions. So we try to model that disagreement. We're, um, uh, you know, we're, we're very close friends. We hang out a lot but we also have these big disagreements. It's possible to be close friends with someone who you think, um, you know, we'll That's get into some bad of his ideas. bad he's ideas. Not, we won't say he's an idiot, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's the one rule. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, so like what I propose in the book is a different way of looking at democracy. I call this democratic minimalism. It's a way of readjusting our expectations because if people are getting disappointed by democracy, maybe the problem is they're expecting too much from it that it's supposed to give them all these other things. So democracy leads to liberalism. Democracy delivers consensus. Democracy leads to efficient, competent government. No, not necessarily. We have to disentangle these things. Sometimes democracy doesn't lead to those things. Why should it lead to competence? Because if people want to vote for their, their party, for a party they like, they're not necessarily looking at oh, here are all the policies they'll do on marginal tax rates, deficit reduction, on bureaucratic efficiency. No, sometimes it's more instinctive. Sometimes they vote for someone like Donald Trump who doesn't have a record of competency because he speaks to them. Is the Muslim Brotherhood the most competent uh, group that you could vote for in an election? Probably not. They had never served in government. They had no experience in bureaucracy. 
So we have to, I think, why do we think competence should be a result of democracy? So I wanna I wanna basically say that democracy is about is about me it's about a procedural mechanism to select leaders through regular elections. And that is what we should be content with. Um, it is about being responsive, responsive to voters. It's about rotating power so that if people make a bad choice in one election, four years later, they can learn from their mistakes, hopefully, and choose another party. And then on we go. And if we kind of cut democracy down to size, it's almost a way of elevating democracy because we can then proceed without illusions. Let's stop pretending that democracy is a panacea. It's great. I think democracy is beautiful. They don't go to war with each other. Well, yeah, democratic <laughs> peace theory is something that, yeah, yeah, that is one argument. Um, so Not anyway, there's argument. a lot to, I mean, <laughs> and, I'll, and, and part of the issue here is that we can't ask more from democracy because we as citizens no longer agree on the ends of politics. We don't agree on the foundational questions even here in America. What does it mean to be American? What is the role of religion in public life? What is the nation? Um, America first or America second? All these things are like, what, um, what is the future of American democracy? These are the, the debates that Americans are taking part in now. And we're never going to be able to reach a consensus on things that are as intense and existential as that. So let's accept, in a sense, defeat and say we're not going to come to any substantive vision of the good that we all agree on. So let's just focus on the procedural mechanisms and each and every one of us should commit to the worst case scenario of the party that we hate. Let's imagine them coming to power in 2024 and committing ourselves to respect that election result, even if God forbid Donald Trump wins fair and square clearly in 2024, it's a threat to everything we hold dear. But if that's what the American people choose, we have no choice but to accept it. And you can extend something similar for the BJP in India or um, the law and justice in Poland or the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, so on and so forth. Current so government that, in Israel? Like, yeah, I Israel, mean, yeah. I, I think that's an, an interesting one. I, I want to pick that up a little bit later. Look, I, the way you, you, you phrase the argument there, um, I've absolutely like almost zero disagreements with it. It's, it's, it's just one thing, even just you were talking about here, maybe press you on a little bit and unpack it. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, you said, uh, I don't know, did you say bad outcomes uh, in, um, you know, politics recently, like Maloney in Italy, Trump, the rest of it. But, but also then you were sort of pivoting back and saying, well, these are outcomes we may like or dislike. Um, and, you know, I think as, a, as an exhortation, like, a, you know, we should all uh, lower our horizons and just commit to democracy. Um, I think I, I feel like that's not, especially philosophically, I think it's a, it's a really good way and I think a, a good sort of idea to get out there and get people thinking about. But, but there's something else that's in the book. Uh, I mean, it's a policy prescription also for U.S. foreign policy, U.S. policy in the Middle East. Uh, U.S. democracy promotion uh, policy. I mean, it's, it's, I think, you know, your ambitions for the book was to get people to rethink about how we do foreign policy and especially how we do democracy promotion. But so, you know, I, I think, you know, on the sort of first principles thing, I, I still struggle with, uh, I think there's a, 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 you come back to it, you assert it, you defend it a little bit, but why is democracy good? Um, what is it that 
that should, apart from this very instrumental, uh, you know, we need to commit to it to manage pluralism and diversity, um, you know, there are other ways to manage pluralism and diversity. Like what? Well, like, you know, empire authoritarianism, all sorts of things that exist out there. That's like a management of diversity. The millet system. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean. The good old days. The good old days, sure. But like, so, so make the normative argument for democracy for me. Like, yeah. why, 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 why should we, uh, apart from the instrumental thing, uh, be so committed to de de uh, democracy as a mechanism? Well, first of all, I don't think the alternatives really help us manage pluralism in the way that we, I mean, so it requires coercion. These multi-ethnic empires of past, they used force. They had um, a state ideology, and that's the one that dominated. And if you, if you, you couldn't select your leaders at a very fundamental level. So the question is, can you manage pluralism without giving people a mechanism to select their leaders? And that's why with the Ottoman Empire, for example, every time a caliph died, there would be a kind of panicking situation because there wasn't a clear mechanism to hand over power. And that's why there was a lot of um, fratricide and things of that nature, because, you know, all bets are off. And, you know, sometimes you got to kill your opponents and, and poison them so that you can become the next caliph. That is not sustainable. And I'm not a fan of poisoning political enemies. So um, that's one way of, I think, approaching it. Um, I think there's only really two options. Either there's coercion where one party comes to power and they say that their way is the only way, and then they basically repress the people who disagree with them. And the alternative is to say that um, we're going to learn to live with these deep differences, and the way that we do that is by giving the other side a chance every four or five years. If they can persuade enough citizens, great. If they can't, then they're going to have to accept the consequences of their failure. So to me, those are the only two options. And I, I guess like the moral case is I don't like coercion. I don't like the state killing people, arresting them and interfering in private belief. Because part of the problem that you have now in, say, Egypt after the coup is that if you have specific religious beliefs that are aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood, the state wants to regulate your views on religion. Like abortion in the United States. Yeah, 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 there's similar, there's analogs, yeah. No, but I mean the flip side of that is the state use a hell of a lot of coercion to regulate people's religious beliefs. In a democracy. In a democracy. Well, not, well, um, it's all on a continuum though, right? I mean, um, I would say that the U.S. still has a lot of latitude when it comes to religious freedom. Um, people can still oppose abortion laws that they disagree with on the local level, right? Um, so let's say you live in Texas, and Texas now has very stringent regulations on whether you can have an abortion. If enough citizens uh, of Texas decide differently, they can vote for a different set of leaders in their next local and state elections, and they can choose a governor who would be more respectful of the right to have an abortion. So there's always a right to recourse. And that to me is really important that even when you lose, you still have a chance to go back into the political arena and say that you want things to be a different way. Now, if you, it'll be hard to persuade enough Texans to um, have a more uh, flexible approach to abortion because it's a more conservative state and it seems like a lot of Texans do want to have these stringent regulations, but there's only one way to find out, which is by seeing how people vote 
next time around. Um, and I don't see the U.S. state as regulating religious knowledge and production. Like we don't have a ministry of Islamic affairs. That would be weird. We don't have a ministry of Christian <laughs> affairs. Every single Arab country has a ministry of religious or Islamic affairs. This to me is crazy. Why is the state directly involved in um, regulating what citizens should think or not think about something that's very personal and private. That seems like a very liberal notion. Well, I mean... And so one of the things, you know, just to be clear why I'm asking that is because in this book, you try to strip away liberalism and democracy, yeah. right? And that the argument here, the underlying, the theoretical argument that you're making is that uh, we can have democracy, but democracy doesn't have to be liberal. Yeah. And so it's this idea of liberal values and liberalism that gets democracy in, in trouble. Yeah. So, but what you're arguing here is that like it would be crazy for a government to dictate values to people. Oh no, no. I, I guess religious yeah, I values, which yeah. seems to me like the the classic liberal justification for democracy. Yeah, I guess I don't. I, so, what I have in mind is like let's say the Muslim Brotherhood was in power, and there wasn't a Ministry of Islamic Affairs. I mean, the relig. I mean, it wouldn't be the state having a religious ideology. It would be the Brotherhood-led government promoting certain religious ideas while they're in power, um, which is a little bit different than the entire state being oriented around a particular um, interpretation of Islam. But right, the Muslim Brotherhood would probably try to promote over time if they were able to stay in power. Um, you know, so I guess I guess I personally, part of the issue too is I'm a liberal. I'm a small L liberal. I wouldn't want to live under Islamist rule but it's not for me to decide how others. So I guess like in this sense, I was talking more about how I feel about people messing with my own religious beliefs. Like I don't want a very secular state telling me that I have to keep my religion private. So it can kind of go both ways. If you have like an Islamist government, they can say, well, you know, secularism is not something that we're going to allow for in the public arena. But the other way is possible too, is that you have a secular government, an ostensibly secular government that tells you, don't politicize Islam. Don't don't bring your Islam into the public sphere, and that to me is the concern. I want to I want to allow citizens and voters to pursue whatever religious course they want through the democratic process, and then that result is then going to be respected. But on liberalism, just to clarify for folks about the distinction, because I think. Oftentimes when we talk about democracy, we're using it as shorthand for liberal democracy, right? Um, and I want to separate, I want to decouple them. Liberal, what is liberalism? Liberalism, and this is the classical liberal tradition, we're not talking here about, oh, let's own the libs or liberal, you know, that kind of thing that it's used in modern American parlance. So the classical liberal tradition is what we would associate with the Bill of Rights, um, that individual autonomy, personal freedoms that are non-negotiable, um, the primacy of reason over revelation, privileging the individual over the collective, emphasis on minority rights, uh, moving towards gender equality, um, so on and so forth. But that gives you a general sense of the package of things that are part of the liberal idea. And then the question is, what happens if a majority of people in a particular country don't share those liberal values? So if we insist that democracy has to be liberal, we're basically saying 
that a whole group of people in our countries, those who don't like liberalism or who are illiberal, that they are not going to, in a sense, be um, full participants in society. We're telling them basically, you bad illiberals who are super religious or whatever it might be, you can only come into the public sphere if you accept the secular terms of debate, that if you're making an argument in Congress, that you have to use secular justifications. You can't, you have, you can't bring too much religion into it because people who don't share your religion won't have your same starting premises. This is the, 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 um, the Rawlsian premise. For those of you who are familiar with John Rawls, he said that you can have your comprehensive religious doctrines and that's fine. But when you're in the public sphere, you can't make your arguments solely within that religious frame. You have to make your arguments in a way that non-religious people would understand. But then you're basically saying that religious people have to suppress a part of who they are, that they can make arguments that seem intuitive and natural to them in the public sphere. They have to act secular when they're in the public sphere. So that's what I, that to me is, you know, something that we should be very concerned about, especially in countries where large numbers of people are religiously conservative. And this is why the Middle East is such an important theater for these kinds of debates, because we're talking about countries where, you know, 70, 80, 90% of the population say that they believe that the principles of Sharia should play a central role in politics. So there are very few secularists in a country like Egypt. Even actual secularists don't actually call themselves secular in Arabic because people would just assume that they're like atheists. Like that that's the kind of connotation that secular has. So let me let me let me just push that a little bit more, you know, and maybe tie it to my previous question uh, about, you know, the the grounding of democracy as a normative grounding for it. I mean, you 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 gesture in it in the book, uh, and it it gets tied into the question of the dignity of the individual, right? And, and so, you know, I guess the part that I struggle with is the extent to which um, you need uh, a sort of more robust appreciation of the individual to even build minimalist democracy on, then maybe you allow. that. That's the tension I feel yeah. in your argument, you know? Which is, you know, how do I put it? Um, it, it, it's, 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 you can't have, minimal democracy requires a kind of minimal liberalism as well, right? Which involves that, at its core, it's this autonomous individual on whom we, sorry, put rights onto, right? That, yeah. that, 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 that enjoys rights that are uh, sort of inalienable, right? But it's, it's, once you've granted that, it seems to me that liberalism then sprouts out of that. And even, you know, in some of the parts you're, you're, you're I think at the beginning of the book, you're citing uh, Americans' commitment, and this is on the policy side, of like commitment to democracy promotion. But every the polls it cites, it's, it's uh, we should be supporting democracy and human rights abroad. Yeah. yeah. Every one of them is, is Pakistan. And that's pollsters for sure. But I, I think the intuition there is that like most Americans, actually, when they say they want to support democracy promotion, they've built onto you know, this inherently innate concept that democracy means the individual, that it's the dignity of the individual, that's the normative good here. Yeah. And then and then liberalism just like sprouts up sort of out of that. And is, so it makes it hard to, to at least yeah. in my head, like make that division. Yeah, and maybe I kind of avoided your previous question a little bit. 
on the normative point, I do mention God a little bit yeah. in chapter two. Yeah. Um, and I'll just be in, this is where I think we probably diverge. Um, so because I believe in God, because I'm a believer, I do believe that God cre created us in a particular way. And I believe that authoritarianism distorts the human spirit. It actually takes us away from our innate disposition, if you will, because what happens under authoritarian rule? We have basically someone else, a ruling party or a dictatorship, the state, basically being almost an intermediary, being elevated at, at an almost godlike level. Because part of what authoritarianism is, there's something incredibly arrogant and prideful about the idea that mere men can have such control over the lives of their citizens. And to basically say to citizens, you can't make your own choices because you are the unwashed masses. We will make them for you. So essentially, dictatorship is a kind of idolatry. And I think there's a very strong Islamic argument that is resolutely anti-authoritarian. Uh, but we don't have to get into all of that. But, you know, be, so if God created human beings, well, in some sense, he created us as individuals. And in the three monotheistic faiths, God is not going to punish us for things that we had nothing to do with. So, you know, when it comes to Islamic judgment, um, you can't bear other people's sins. And there is something individual about that, that God takes you as an individual in terms of your relationship with him, right? Mm. Um, and I think also that, um, that yes, that, that, is, that is like part of my you know, starting assumption, but, but that individualism doesn't lead to liberalism because mm. I, you know, uh, people should have the right to vote. They should have the right to protest. And I don't know what you thought about the parts where I try to distinguish between cultural liberalism and political liberalism. So you're right that you can't completely separate liberalism and democracy because to have competitive elections, you need to give people the right to criticize the government. You have to give people the right to organize political parties, to write a letter to their editor. They're otherwise... If you can't hold a protest, then your party isn't going to be able to communicate its preferences to voters. If you're not allowed to gather in a square with more than 100 people, then how are you going to share your message with a larger audience? If you have no access to the media, how will people know what your political platform is? So even with minimalist democracy, you need some basic freedom to participate. Where I really draw a stark line, though, is on the cultural liberalism. And that, that is, is, I think, a, a distinction I tried to make clear in the book. Obviously, it can get a little bit dicey. But basically, um, you, you know, the right to protest or the right to gather in a public square is different than, say, um, the right to uh, is different than uh, restricting alcohol consumption, for example, or restricting abortion rights. Or, but universal suffrage, you'd say, because of the individual, is a core one. So women's rights. Yeah, w women, afford, women, everyone would need the right to vote because um, just vote. With, without, without the right to vote, then you can't actually have the right to recourse. You can't, I mean, but please, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I'm listening to this, and I, I don't think you've answered Demir's question. Well, in what sense? <laughs> so, in this way, you have a nice, tidy, like, uh, your argument does a lot, and I think it's very courageous, Shadi. Um, and it's big and Thanks. it's bold. 
And uh, what I like about it, I mean, for someone to say right now that the Bush freedom agenda didn't go far enough, which is yeah. what he argues in the book, I think. Okay, well, to clarify, Bush freedom agenda minus the Iraq war. Minus the Iraq war. Okay, just footnote. <laughs> didn't go far <laughs> enough. Like, that's chutzpah. And if you read the last chapter, which we can talk about, about what the policy solution is to this, lots of chutzpah there. Yeah. Um, so I think that this is really a courageous argument. But... This idea that democracy, that we should focus on the means and not the ends of what democracy does, right? And you've got this nice, tidy box around what democracy is and how it works. And to me, it seems like a very, very, like the, this is why you didn't answer Demir's question, okay. yeah. is because what, what, what unites people around like this nice, tidy box, this very technocratic solution that we have that everybody's going to agree nicely to observe the outcomes, like well-behaved children, as we know people are in politics, they're going to observe the outcomes of the election. And they're going to, you know, even though someone they totally hate just got elected who says, I don't know, their ethnic or religious group is next to scum, but they're going to nicely, uh, you know, agree to observe this outcome of the election. And this is, a, to me, it seems like a very technocratic solution to incredibly, like, you're taking the politics out of democracy. Wait, but our, no, so. Yeah, yeah please. Yeah, yeah. Here, let's hand you the microphone. Let me just, let's hand you the microphone. Yeah. One second, sir. We just want to, because we're capturing the podcast, we want you to grab that and just speak. Yeah, yeah. Please, go ahead. Please. Um, I'm an old-fashioned emeritus professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and I wanted to go back to one of your first comments, which I think really produces some real difficulty. Uh, that is the ease with which you were able to talk about bad incomes, mm. bad outcomes, rather. Because if you take, let's say, take Brazil, uh, half of the country thinks that the election was a good outcome. Right. And almost half of the country, by a very, very mar small margin, thinks that it's a bad outcome. And the same thing is true in the United States. That's right. The whole argument about the last election is the, the de Democrats think that's a good outcome. And the Republican side says, no, it's a bad outcome. It's much worse than that. And so I, I wish you didn't start with that, because I, I don't think it helps, because we're all liberals here with a few modifications around the edge. I don't know about that. <laughs> no, but I mean, sir, just you know, just to, to say, I, I, I was making exactly the point. I thought I was trying to make the point, the, the one that you're saying, because it's it's, I I'm 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 not certainly, and I think Shadi is also trying to make the point. It's like it's the the good and bad outcome is problematic, and to to. Shadi is explicitly saying, let's not do that. He's saying, we can, we I can put it in scare quotes, like bad outcomes. I'm OK, saying, well, I haven't read yeah. your book, so I don't know. No, no, but, but at but, least in the original bold representation of this, you were very, very easily said that we can make a clear distinction between good and bad outcomes. My argument was exactly the opposite in a way. What I was saying is just like, I thought Shadi was being actually in his exposition openly a little too easily going between uh, uh, sort of the instrumental element of it and the good and bad part. Um, and, and actually imputing moral outcomes without telling us, me, and even like I think fully, he did a little bit with the religious part, uh, uh, describe the normative, what's the good of democracy? That's what I wanted to know, because I, I thought that it was a little loose, that part of the discussion about good and bad outcomes. I think that is your point, right? It's like bad outcomes are... Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't want... I'm I don't want to make very definitive judgments about what is good and bad, because 
My premise is that there's no longer enough common ground on the foundational level for us as Americans to agree on what is good, as you said, because it's a 50-50 country. And the 50-50 divide is pretty stark. It's existential. It feels existential. That democracy is at stake. The future of America is at stake. So when Democrats win, Republicans will see that as a bad outcome. And when Trump wins, you know, I and many others will see that as a bad outcome. But I can't impose that understanding on the rest of the country because how can I? We just don't have any common language with which to make these determinations. And I think that is the case increasingly in any number of different countries. You mentioned Brazil as well. But, you know, but I guess I would say that, to, Jen, to your point, what I'm what, I, what I'm trying to lay out is a kind of democratic competition where everything is fair game. So let's say. But uh, you have to agree to those rules. But, that's, but it's right? not asking too much. But, but it, you have to be united. Like you have to know that. Uh, I mean, I just remember, you know, as, as someone who's like very much an institutionalist, that I was watching the elections in our country. I think there's so much presentism. But we're not thinking historically about how our institutions have really endured for so long. And America has been through these upheavals over generations that this is not new. And we react to like what happened at cable news, social media gets us all thinking that we all disagree and hate each other when actually there's a lot of like data that shows we don't. And there's actually so much that we actually agree on. On, so much that we agree on, right? But we focus on, you know, these cultural issues that get people really animated, that politics, like the big P politics, actually has very little influence over. Um, you know, the Supreme Court's going to end, you know. I mean, it's catastrophizing constantly. And, but for this, you know, process to work that you're describing, this, we're all going to, you know, sit with our hands clasped and agree to observe the outcome regardless, that requires values. That requires that you are deeply united on values. Hmm. Well, why does it, I, but it's not clear to me why it would require. What would bring people together? So I know that, you know, some politician I, who, says bad things about my ethnic group, my religious group, for example, uh, is coming to power. But I'm just going to sit and, and know that this is just four years and I'm going to take this um, because I know that everybody else in society is going to respect this outcome too. And in four years from now, we're going to have another election. When we know that people's quest for power, right, maybe isn't, isn't driven like this, that it, it, we need these constraints. Um, and the constraints can come from institutions, they can come from rules, or they can come from individuals. And without society coordinated on those beliefs, this technocratic solution could be very authoritarian. Yeah, well, so there's still going to be a constitutional framework. So I'm not saying that we do away with um, a constitutional and legal framework. I just, so when people say that what I'm suggesting runs the risk of tyranny of the majority, it's not true because I. I think there are limits to what majorities can do. So sometimes people will say, well, what if a majority wants to commit genocide against an ethnic group? Well, that wouldn't fly according to democratic minimalism because if you kill people, they no longer have the right to vote. And that's like, you know, so you need to have that basic level of political competition. So you can't kill people in a very, I mean, so at a very basic level, like these hypotheticals of what if people do this if they have a majority, um, that is not going to be democratic if you disenfranchise a whole part of the population, women or other minorities, and say, you are no longer citizens, you no longer have the right to vote, for example. 
Um, but I, what I think what I'm trying to do is to say, we're asking a lot if we're asking all of our fellow citizens to become both Democrats and liberals. So I'm saying, let's make it easier. We're not going to ask you to sign up for values that aren't intuitive to you. The package of liberal ideals, not everyone is going to feel comfortable. They'll feel that some of that goes against their religious beliefs, for example, let's say in a Middle Eastern context. So we say, fine, let's let's make it, you know, let's have more people feel they can be fully part of society by not imposing this liberal litmus test on them. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think what we're also conflating is your notion of what cultural liberalism, yeah. right? And that's, I think, where like the notion of liberalism has evolved and changed. If we look at like what I think classical liberalism is and, and you know, is this restraint on state power is like the Bill of Rights. What the state shall not do to you, yep. right? What the state shall not do, like freedom of, of religion, freedom of association, property protection. It's like basic, very minimal things, that conception of liberalism. Whereas the, I think, you know, are you strawmanning this notion of liberalism and like, okay, we can't have this in the Middle East because it's so contentious and it's gender and it's LGBTQ. To be fair, all these, yeah. To be fair, I think though where Shadi's going at is like Rawls is the devil. Like Rawls should be like he's what ruined liberalism as as opposed to your liberalism. And that's a different that's a different yeah, vision yeah, of liberalism. Yeah. So I'm not sure that you can have this con the conception of democracy without basic tenets. Of, well, let like, me ask you this, yeah. like just specific example. So let's say you have a group like the Muslim Brotherhood. They win a majority in parliament and then they ban alcohol or let's say they make it harder for women to initiate divorce proceedings or let's say um inherit the kind of you know enshrine limitations on female inheritance according to you know particular interpretations of islamic law or let's say they implement the hadood punishments of cutting off the hands of thieves i'm just giving very extreme examples i don't I, I don't like any of those things but i'm trying to think what is what is the most intense example of illiberalism that we can imagine what do you have the right to appeal? Do you have a right to a lawyer? Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, Oftentimes yeah. when you, but, but I mean, this is really hypothetical. When you have hudud and these, you know, you tend to have these contexts, they coexist in these contexts where there are no, you know, you don't, you, yeah. you can't call a lawyer, right? Okay. But, but that's not, I mean, what if you, what if you had punishments, but you actually did have due process? I mean, the two can theoretically. I mean, we have a death penalty in the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, somehow an equivalent of hudud, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so are, would those go again? So when we talk about your min, your minimal, so I think part of the issue too is I don't believe classical liberalism exists I, I, in real life. It's a theoretical construct when people say, well, oh, I mean the classical kind. Hmm. And this is the debate that we've had with other folks on the podcast, including Francis Fukuyama, who whenever, you know, I feel like it's a no true Scotsman fallacy. Whenever we say that liberalism is overreaching and doing too much, people say, well, yeah, we're, well, that's not the liberalism we want. We want the more limited liberalism. But can classical liberalism ever stay classical? And I don't think there's a single classically liberal country in the world that has stayed as minimal as you suggest. So it's a slippery slope argument for liberalism. Yeah, you though. can't. You can't. But, but that then still causes the problem for you, though, right? Because it's it's you still can't. If you, if you require that kind of minimal liberal component of democracy, minimalist democracy is kind of hard to do because you're always going to get the slippery slope to the maximal liberalism. And yeah, as you said, like the maybe the minimum one doesn't exist, but why doesn't it exist? Because it creates demands for the bigger ones. 
And I think it's like, again, it's intuitive to most Americans that when they're like, oh, democracy promotion and human rights, because we're, it's, it's intuitive to us that like a lot of these things adhere to individuals in foreign policy and democracy promotion. We're, I mean, we're also conflating stuff here between like yeah, foreign policy yeah. and our domestic stuff at the same time. But it seems to me there is a slippery, slippery slope. You know, one way to say it is that there's, there is no such thing as classical liberalism. The other way to say it is there's a classical liberalism that always ends up at a, mu a much more maximalist thing that ends up abrading against things that you say, you know, yeah, need to coexist yeah. in, in democracy, right? Yeah, and I guess so. The question is, when we look at practical examples, um, is it possible? So, not to bring up, um, I, I think the case of Israel is fascinating, and just because I know you you have thoughts on that, but um, I think it is possible to very consciously, um, it if we can if we can help people be more aware of the distinctions between liberalism and democracy then we can popularize these ideas and people can understand that there is a risk of a slippery slippery slope. At the end of the day, um, democratic minimalism only works if enough people start to agree with me over the coming decades, let's say. Um, but obviously, if there isn't buy-in for my idea and it stays like a very mi minoritarian view, then obviously it's not going to happen. But my hope is that by popularizing these distinctions and decoupling liberalism from democracy in a more self-conscious way, we can start to reorient. And if more people hear these ideas, then it'll make them perhaps more accepting of, oh, because if, if we reassure them that they will, um, they can vote for that, we will, let's so for example, let's say Trump supporters. If we as um, members of the Democratic Party, I mean, I still vote Democrat, as critical as I am of the Democratic Party, if more of us as Democrats could reassure Trump supporters that we see them as equal citizens, that we're not trying to put them in a basket of deplorables, there's 74 million of them. If we can go out of our way and say, you know what, you are not, you know, you are not evil and we will respect your decision at the ballot box. And the other way around too, I would ask them. And when I talk to you know far right audiences, I say, if by you know, if Biden or someone like him Yes, there's no one like him, but if Biden or another Democratic candidate wins in 2024, I ask the same thing of you, Trump supporters. You have to commit just the way that I'm. So there has to be some. We don't kind need of... God. We've got Shaddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. So there is a kind of exchange, and some what I have in mind in a practical way is a code of conduct. If we could popularize a national code of conduct, and where people sign on to this commitment. Like, <laughs> democracy promotion didn't fail it was never really tried <laughs> well i mean look i don't think the... but but let me let me so you know i i, I the thing i'd, I'd want to also now press on here and it's tied to jen's point i feel like we're, we're pushing on the same uh on the same line here and we didn't really coordinate on this at all so but here's the other part you know it's it's again there you were talking about domestic politics united states a uh, you know, for all our differences, a reasonably coherent polity that coheres. When it gets into foreign policy and democracy promotion, I'm curious how one conceives of, you know, you, you, you just when we've been talking, you talk about in a society. What are the limits of a society and how, um, and are there problems in that, in the, on the sort of policy space when you're going abroad as you sort of conceptualize and how you even think about it? Now, again, just sort of putting my cards on the table, uh, Jen mentioned I work on the Balkans uh, at the Atlantic Council. I'm from the region. 
you know, I, I, and this is also why whenever democratic peace theory comes up, like, you know, my eyes roll back in my head kind of violently. Um, it's, 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 uh, democratic peace theory necessarily, I think, always finds an exception when, like, something pops up that doesn't, it's like, well, you know, it wasn't that because, I don't know. It was too, never really tried. No, 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 never, never really tried, but yeah, there was like, there are too many chickens in that, that democracy. It they doesn't qualify McDonald's. as a democracy. They didn't have McDonald's. No, right. Uh, so, the McDonald's theory yeah. of, yeah, that, yeah, that was No, no, but for example, it's, 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 how do you, how do you adjudicate and, you know, when, when democracy fails or when you are having a dissolution of a polity, let's say Yugoslavia, that's falling apart. Um, you know, uh, the Serbian uh, strongman was elected in 1990. He established the Serbian democracy, you know? Now, again, this is where democratic peace theory says, well, obviously, in times of civil war, it doesn't apply to democratic peace theory. Still, you know, there's something there about what's the limit of the polity? Because yeah. at the limit, uh, there's the limit of too extensive. I think this is a big blind spot for Americans. We're a big country. We manage diversity pretty well. So then, in some sense, we're like, well, why can't it work on a large scale elsewhere? And we see it practically, you know, the, the delineation of the polity of society ends up being defined either on ethnic lines, which is, in fact, the case in Europe. You have ethnic democracies almost everywhere as a result of the, of the wars. Ethnic cleansing, massive things happened, and then now you have functioning democracies because they've been homogenized. That's a real blind spot for Americans. Um, but then it's also, you know, it's 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 the question of, that's getting back to Jen's point, you know, I, I feel like sometimes when you talk about minimal democracy, and here I'll even pivot back to, you know, mm. the, the domestic case, it's like it's the faith in democracy that's enough to hold a polity together. It's always struck me that you need something more. Jen called it values. I'm more inclined to say there is some sort of like historical, cultural, maybe ethnic something basis to it. Now it's not ethnic elsewhere once you get out of sort of the West more broadly, the conception of what unifies a state becomes different. And I, it's th that's the part that, that, that I come up short with on democratic minimalism. Yeah, but, but, but I think what you're suggesting is even more difficult because there isn't anything that is going to be a value system that we as Americans are gonna get around and agree on. Or let's take Egypt. How are you going to get Egyptians to agree on a substantive notion of the good? You won't be able to. So this idea that you need this stronger bind is nice in theory, but there is no stronger bind in these countries. It doesn't have to be stronger. It's more like, I, I'm more thinking of an idea. I don't know, Jen, I'm gonna say dumb yeah. stuff here just because like, you know, I'm like a total enthusiast, but like just self-taught and not that well-read on Afghanistan. But I remember the, the one thing uh, in my, my readings when I was much younger, and it was, it was this idea that, you know, uh, especially when the British were coming in, and also then applied to the Americans as well, it's, it's the, the, the Afghan identity coalesces at that point to say, yes, we're all together against that. But inside sort of politics, but inside in, in politics within Afghanistan, there's all sorts of fissures. But there is this idea of Afghanistan. There's an idea of Egypt. There's not an idea of, I have faith in democracy and I'm gonna okay, deal but, with um, it. But there isn't a shared idea of Egypt. That's actually the problem. Egyptians don't agree on what Egypt is or what it should be. But, uh, and this but the is, idea that We have our Egyptians. colleagues from Afghanistan here shaking yeah. their heads yeah. about a shared oh, idea. So please jump in. No, no, this is also a prod to get you guys to, to yell just, at us. So. Just, yeah. One thing I just wanna say about the Middle East context since we didn't die, just yeah. so you guys know where my premises are. Um, you know, I'm really, my views on a lot of this are shaped by my experience in the Arab Spring. And I saw kind of the rise and fall. I mean, I was there when Mubarak fell in Tahrir Square, February 11th, 2011. So I've been trying to understand how could, 
how could it go from that, this moment of euphoria, to not just a coup against a democratically elected government that Egyptians had just voted for like a year and a half prior, but also a massacre where, um, as some of you know, that happened where a thousand Muslim Brotherhood supporters were killed. So that darkened my view of human nature. And I'm, I'm also trying to understand why didn't the U.S. live up to its own democratic ideals? Because the Obama administration said that it liked democracy in theory, but when it saw that Islamist parties were doing very well, including the Muslim Brotherhood, we see a souring on, of the, on the democratic idea. So this has really big implications for foreign policy and how we approach these countries when a party we don't like wins. And for most Americans, if the Brotherhood wins, we're going to feel naturally uncomfortable with that. So part of what I want to do is resolve this Islamist dilemma, because I don't think the Middle East can go forward until we come to terms with this fundamental divide, because Islamist parties will continue to do well, even if they don't win outright, they'll still do well. So Americans, so from the standpoint of foreign policy for future administrations, let's say there's another Arab Spring, I don't want to repeat what happened and do it all over again. And so if we as Americans, when we're approaching Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia, whatever, we can say, look, we're not expecting you to become liberals, but we are expecting you to have a democratic process. And we're going to finally, we didn't, we weren't down with Algeria. We, we've never been comfortable with these outcomes. So that's part of what's driving some of my arguments yeah. is that I've seen the dangers of not holding true to this minimal democratic standard. And I think that we, that's a moral stain hypocrisy. on the Obama Hypocrisy, Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, so, yeah. and just to clarify, I don't, I don't, I'm not like a neocon in this. So I just bit. don't want people not to yet. get the little wrong bit. idea. Not yet, a little bit. Um, I, I'm not talking about spreading democracy through military force. I'm talking about using American leverage with economic and military aid packages. So Egypt That are gets, really ineffective. Well, we've never actually used. We a, haven't tried. Them we've yet. Never, we haven't. I mean, as a factual matter, we have not actually threatened a full immediate suspension of military assistance. We've ground the Egyptian military in weeks by suspending spare parts, maintenance, logistical support, advice, training, everything. We could stop the Egyptian military from operating its tanks and jets. The Saudi military is completely dependent on American support in this very kind of specific, minute way. If we want, if Biden tomorrow said, okay, if you Saudis don't meet certain expectations, don't become Democrat, it's not realistic, just be a little bit less repressive, just a little bit less. And then we'll have certain benchmarks. But if you don't meet those benchmarks, like we, like, um, I was gonna say something inappropriate, we will, um, we will, we will like mess you, like don't, don't like, don't, don't mess with America. At the end of the day, we are a superpower and now we have these junior partners Saudi Arabia and Egypt acting like they own us and that they can get away with anything. No, if you want our aid, if you want our support, then at least stop, you know, being so repressive. And can you, we haven't actually. So it's that that strategy's worked so well in so many places. Wait, 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 we've never tried it, and then no, we've never actually done on military assist. I mean, I'm just looking like Afghanistan, for example. Yeah. Girls in school, like the U.S. has tried every trick in the book to stop, you know, to have some inkling of. Uh, I mean, this is a broader question yeah. of diplomacy. I just, I'm really concerned that in this idealistic version of how we, uh, the United States promotes democracy, that there's not a um, very realistic understanding of how this influence works. Shadi, yeah. wouldn't 
promote girls in school. I know. Just say, no. Yeah, that's but, hard. I mean, yeah. not girls in school, but anything, right? Okay, but we could have. I, I believe that the Obama administration could have stopped the coup in the in the ten days leading up to the July third military coup. There were a number of key moments that I try to lay out right, in the right, book right. where. Um, senior U.S. officials, and I, and I interviewed a lot of them, people who were in the room during these key moments and on um, Chuck Hagel's calls with Sisi, we did not make clear to the military that there would be consequences if they moved forward with the coup. It was kind of like a wink. We would, you know, don't be too repressive. Be careful about how you approach this, but you guys know best. Do what you feel you have to do. If, we, if Obama had announced publicly saying that if the Egyptian military goes forward with this ahead of time, there will be a full suspension, full, not partial, none of this splitting the middle, a full immediate suspension of all military assistance. Egypt needs us more than we need them. So, and yes, yeah, so, so 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 look, uh, you know, I I I uh, well, we should also bring yeah, 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 Omar, I, Omar, yeah. Omar, uh, jump in, go yeah, ahead, go ahead, and here's the microphone. This is Omar Sadr. He's a senior research scholar with our center here. Uh, a bunch of ideas I hope I can coherently uh, present it. I think it, the, the fundamental question is how can we settle uh, politics in a deeply divided society? Yes. Is it through democracy or alternatives? You are coming, I think you are coming halfway correctly and leave it in an inappropriate way and you can take it a bit forward. Um, we do not have an end state in the politics. You're right, because liberalism presents certain in the states and wants us to agree on that. In most of the cases, those are value-driven, which may be contentious for some others who do not subscribe to those. But I think democracy also cannot bind societies together, as simply Jane highlighted. Then at the same time, I need if. I do agree that liberalism doesn't have that capacity, but also I think that democracy doesn't have that capacity because of the same reason. What we do need is a substance, which is the idea on plurality. That's not procedure like democracy that you, well, this, this is a set of rules and we agree on it. The idea of plurality is something substantial that you have to believe in it. Now this is value neutral because Plurality may come with different kind of interpretations and ways of life and all that. So that's why I think you are taking classic liberalism as of classic secularism. You have a problem with secularism. And that comes from enlightenment model of liberalism, not the recent ones. Now, if we think that we can have multiple ways of secularism, wherein, for example, the European practices of secularism like the one in Germany or Britain which has established church the other one allows religion to to practice in public so it's it's about whether we assume secularism as a separation of church and state or secularism as a even-handedness of different values and religion so in that case if we allow multiple beliefs and the public sphere as an equal treatment of everyone, not to ban them. Um, that is something would be a solution. I think you can you can argue your point as, as of like this, because you want in, in countries like Middle East, religion should be allowed to practice, uh, not just in the public, but also you can take them, you want to take them into the politics, like religious parties should be allowed. 
Now, what you do not answer is that how can we, or well, we allow them, but how can we uh, somehow govern or manage all this diversity when they might also probably ban certain things, like you are saying, an alcohol? So to me, the answer is a secularism of even-handedness, which subscribes to the idea of plurality, not to the idea of separation of church and state. Now, to the last point, I think one case, at least, hmm. which your proposition may not respond to is Pakistan. Um, Factionalism. Islamist, Islamist parties oh. in Pakistan for a long time, like since inception of Pakistan, they are part of democracy. Yeah. However, they also have parallel militant wings. Yeah. So to me, politics is about end of war, conflict. And democracy, if it leads us to this, perfect. Fair enough. But in case of Pakistan, only democracy, let's not label it liberal or illiberal, what you mean, just simple democracy, does not give us the outcome that you want. That means that democracy, most of the time, merely, merely democracy, a small democracy, may not be the solution if we do not attach with it the idea of plurality, which is itself a substance. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious what you, what you think about I, some of these points. Do you, do you want to go first? I, yeah. Look, so I, I just want to ask you uh, to press you a bit more on this. I, I, I'm not sure I find the, the commitment to plurality any more convincing than the commitment to democracy. It's just an idea, and it doesn't have, I think, the sort of glue to it. And this is what I was getting at on this question of identity and what's, how do you limit a society? Because here's the, the question. Is there such a thing as a global society? I think it's an absurd idea. It's impossible. Why? Why can't we agree on globally on agreeing on, on the idea of pluralism globally? I mean, technically we do. We settle things with wars, with killing each other. But like at the limit now, and this, you get this idea of global justice, and that you can adjudicate these things. They're just they're, these are that's really thin stuff from where I'm concerned. And so when I think about states, even to your points about Europe, you know, yeah, you have you have uh, churches that exist, but the the sense of belonging. Now again, Shadi and I talk a lot about this: the question of of Islam in Europe and Muslims in Europe and how that's happening. Maybe over the uh, the next 100 years, you will find the Turks in Germany you know, and German identity encompassing to fill that in. The experience of the last uh, 50 years in Europe, I would say, um, and, and including still now, is a sense that if you're not German, if you're not Austrian, I, I've said this story before, you know, my, my uh, uncle, uh, my late uncle, uh, you know, was a Croatian, he emigrated to Austria. There's lots of Slavs living in, in Austria right now. Um, full rights, never full full Austrian, never, it's known, you know? And and so, okay, this sort of thing, I think maybe over time gets, those edges get sanded away in a new concept of Austrianism, a new concept of Germanism. A Jew in any country in Eastern Europe. A Jew in any country, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. exactly. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the, so all I'm, 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 I'm asking you is like, what's the idea of pluralism? And why is it stronger than the idea of democracy, which to me is also kind of weak? Now, to me, Germany is not a good example of pluralism, if you want to highlight. Yeah. Um, there are limits to it. For example, for citizenship, if you apply for German citizenship, there are questions like, do you, what do you think about gay marriage? Um, right. So these are valid questions. A liberal litmus test, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think this question could be asked. Even 
EU citizenship has such kind of question, I suppose. There are things are, related are you to... Are member of the Communist Party? Yeah. Yes, Communist Party yeah. or totalitarian... But that was or, okay, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could handle yeah. I think the, this, is, this question could be asked, but this should not limit, this should not be a gateway towards citizenship. It should not function as a gate. Yeah. Um, now, best example of pluralism to me would be uh, Indonesia uh, and India. India minus... Moody uh, in government. Well, that's a that's a big minus. Uh, uh, that... Well, I mean the cultural pluralism of it, not the not okay. The existing now the party yeah. comes and goes, but I mean how they deal with religious plurality. If, if we are talking pluralism in terms of religion and all that, now what is the distinction in Europe, uh, continental Europe, for example, Switzerland, Germany, uh, Netherlands to a, to a large extent, a state cooperates with churches, for example, in collecting church taxes. The state also funds religious institutions, private institutions. So that means accommodating religion in public sphere. Now, in case of Malaysia, um, Indonesia, the state does this, but at the same time, it goes a bit further, wherein it allows, for example, multiple religions at the same time. In Europe, it's only Christianity. Muslims find themselves quite difficult to assert their identity as a group. Now, in Malaysia, you, uh, Indonesia, you have at least four to five religions including Christianity, Islam, um, Hinduism, but the state treats all of them equally. So it's a that's I will have to take issue that it's that's not true for Malaysia. Um, and I don't think it's true for I mean, I do talk about Indonesia and Malaysia to some extent um, in the book, although it's not the focus. But pan-Malay Muslim identity is at the heart of the ruling party um, uh, until recently. It's no it's no longer they accommodated but, Chinese and, and, and Confucius. But still, recently. I mean, but still like um, this it's not, the state was not kind of removed from religious questions. The ruling party was not. The ruling party had very strong views about what it means to be a Muslim, and they were trying to out. Anyway, there's. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm very skeptical of this idea of even-handed secularism because the way you described it earlier, you're saying that religious parties can participate, but then there's a limit to what they can do if they come into power. So ultimately, you're restrict because as as part of as part of people's religious beliefs, they believe that other people should be subject to their religious preferences. So the stuff that I mentioned on alcohol consumption, it's maybe not the most important one, but it's an obvious one because a lot of people debate it, um, especially in proselytizing religions. I yeah. mean, especially like I think that becomes pro uh, problematic in religions that really believe in proselytizing yeah. that like deny the legitimacy of other faiths. Yeah, yeah. So if you're telling an Islamist party that you can be Islamist, but then you can't actually pass legislation that restricts, that changes divor divorce proceedings because that will affect someone else's religious belief or alcohol consumption because that's not religiously neutral, then you're saying basically you're putting liberal constraints and you're saying that religious parties can't actually express their religious well, let me preferences. Come back to that. Uh Cases like divorce is not a public issue, it's a private issue. You can accommodate it within a multicultural, not multicultural, pluralistic state. For example, you can have um, courts, uh, which should, for example, allow people to have their own settlements of personal issues based on their own personal uh, religious kind of ideas. India does that one. Muslims have the possibility of opting either for a secular law or oh. religious law. So this is not a problem. I'm not saying that as an even-handedness secular state will impose 
certain form of religiosity. For me, religion plus secularism should be treated equally in a plural state. So secularism is also a secular idea and a sacred idea. Both of them will be treated equally. A state will not prefer either secularism or religion. That's I mean, nice in theory. I just don't know anywhere where that's the... I mean, well, so I just want to say, I want to plug Omar's yeah, book. Yeah. It's called Negotiating Cultural Diversity in Afghanistan. If you're interested in mm. his theory of pluralism, I would definitely pick that up. Mm. Mm. Uh, look, um, I, I guess, again, it, 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 it comes down to me. It's like why why both democracy and this, this pluralism idea seems like it's missing something. And, and that is, again... Uh, what what is it that that even you know you, you talk about citizenship tests um that's also sort of a, a novel idea right that that you even have these sorts of things but it, it's still it's letting some people into the polity and and again it that presupposes a certain kind of universal human community where you can just move people between communities and it's fine again we we may wish this and we may rationally deduce that this is what we want it's just not the case that that's how societies work societies work about limiting a lot of these things, modern societies especially, because it ends up, and it's maybe getting back to, to, to Jen's point about like removing politics from a lot of this, because politics, you know, you said, I think rightly, that politics uh, is the end of war, but it's also a continuation of war, just taking the killing out of it. And, and on some level, it's, it's, the, it's, the, uh, um, it's the fact that politics is not a rational, necessarily a rational discussion about people getting together and deliberating about the best ends and then the give and take, again, the sort of Habermas idea. It's, it really is much more bare knuckled. And, you know, where democracy works is by lowering the temperature. We're not slitting each other's throats. We've just agreed to a certain basic set of principles that we can do this. But nevertheless, democracy is not enough. And nevertheless, a commitment to any of these things is not enough. It's what's the community? What's the political community? And then, you know, what, at, at what cohesion. limits? And yeah, like what is it that binds people to respect all this, except that it's a good thing to do? Is that it brings stability? So, you know, you've tried to, like, get the, like, so I, what are, where I think we all agree is that, like, this whole idea that, dem like, democracy has been so oversold, right? Democracy will, like, reduce inflation. Democracy will generate economic growth. Democracy, you know, will, like, get you new shoes. You know, democracy, tap dancing. Democracy <laughs> will do everything. Democracy was so oversold, and democracy actually, you know, so I think the, the very virtuous part of your argument is that we need to look at the very basics of what democracy does and that it's a respect of individual and individual rights. I think... What is it that democracy is doing except providing continuity and stability? Is that the argument? It's regulating conflict. So that's you're making a stability argument. I mean, st I mean, a stability argument. Um, it's like you know that from one election to the next, you're going to have predictability. Yeah, yeah. And and everybody's going to observe the rules, and even like everybody's going to have term limits reg over, regardless yeah, the of their ideology, right? It's going to be very stable. Yeah, there's unpredictability from one election to another because you don't know who's going to win and the decisions can be quite stark. But the overall regime, because you can you know that elections will come at certain times and that this is how you resolve differences through electoral competition. I think one of the challenges is when there's too much at stake in elections because the state is the prize. It's a strong centralized state that has a lot of jurisdiction over culture. So I think one thing that we should probably just emphasize is that it is worth thinking about how to weaken the state, because this is what 
makes it so hard for people to accept outcomes because they feel like this is the most important election in the universe. The state will take control. So maybe the focus on enhancing state capacity has to be rethought that that is not. And, but but even in the United States, like this is what always got me, still gets me when I see the catastrophizing over our elections here when so like people are fixated about national politics when so many of the most important things that happen to you in your lives here in this country do not happen in Washington. Washington doesn't even do anything anymore, right? Look at Congress, right? It happens at the local level, yet there's no, I mean, we saw this during COVID and school boards and all of this, like now people started paying attention, ah, you know, our city council, our school board, they're responsible for things. No one pays attention to this. This is actually where the stakes are highest. Yet, and, and, but yet politics pushes us up to this level. We're debating all of these things as if it's the end of the world. Yet the institutional constraints at the subnational level in the United States do exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, we should also, one thing, yeah. I, I think on but like gender identity and trans rights issues and things like that, they matter on the national level, but they're also refracted on the local level. So these are all culture war issues and they do matter on the local. I mean, so local school board elections now are invested with so much meaning because it affects how your kids are going to be taught in public school. So it's still part of this cultural existential vibe to our politics, because whoever controls the educational system can then shape norms around gender identity. And you might say, well, most people, this doesn't actually have much of an effect, or let's say even just the idea of Donald Trump being president again, I feel for a lot of Americans on a metaphysical level in terms of how they see their own country in an intangible way, it's like psychic harm to them. So I think that we have to look at politics, not just about tangibly what happens in policy, but how you feel about your own country, you can't put a price tag on that. And that's so that does matter to a lot of people, even though it maybe shouldn't. Right. Can, can I can I something you said about lowering state capacity? I also want to ask Jen about this, because I mean, it's sort of. It's, look, uh, and this ties again to my my question about at the limit and what binds the state together. Uh, now we're talking about foreign policy. Let's leave the domestic yeah. side Yeah, aside. we actually have some questions yeah, from the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, from, I mean, from our viewers, oh, from viewers. online okay, yeah, yeah. about yeah. Uh, foreign policy issues. And I think maybe we just pivot to this. Or you want, why don't you ask your question? Let me question? just ask yeah. it really quickly yeah. on this. And it's, it's, it's um, you know, as a policy prescription, uh, if you're, you're doing this uh, basically and, and really to try and limit state capacity, you don't have a sense of, or at least you've not lined out, like, what the limits of a polity are, you know, as you weaken state capacity uh, in not well, not terribly well institutionalized authoritarian or authoritarian recovering regimes, basically, you're not you're the what fills the void is not an instinct for democracy, and it's not like coming. It's it's a kind of um, uh, centrifugal force, basically. So also that then brings the question of you know the use of force to keep the state together, whether it's democratic, you know, it's it's. And I, 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 I intuit you'd say something like, well, you know, democracy is difficult and messy and, well, you know, we need to sort of abide by that. But I wonder if that's also a little too, too easy and light. But basically that, you know, it's, it's the state existing is, is an important thing. Yeah. In many ways, it's an, ex it's an existential question. And, you know, as a policy prescription to say we need to be encouraging democracy. Um, and weakening the central state. And weakening the state. I, I almost wonder if it's 
too optimistic to think that, that like, as a result, you'll get democracy rather than complete anarchy and slaughter? Well, um, well, keep in mind that in a lot of, yeah, um, in a lot of these countries, the state, so I, I'm, you know, I don't work on Afghanistan and I know Jen will have it, you know, obviously this has different implications for different countries, but if we look at a lot of the Arab countries, it's not so much like anarchy and chaos, like Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, the states are strong and maybe even too strong. They are, so I'm thinking more in terms of these particular cases, the state should not be as influential or as dominant. And also the role of the military is a relevant concern here, that the military is the representative of the state and the guardian of the state and is running a lot of things like, you know, um, you know, factories, industry, uh, di distributing food and so forth. So that kind of role to me is very unhealthy because the state has its, you know, fingers and tentacles pretty much everywhere. But obviously in, in Afghanistan, you wouldn't necessarily want to have the policy prescription of let's weaken state capacity. Absolutely, you should weaken. I mean, that oh. was the problem. If you look at, it's not just Afghanistan, you look at Somalia, right? So where you get anarchy and chaos, it's not where systems are very decentralized. It's systems where, where systems are hyper-centralized, right? Syria, uh, Yemen, like where governments try to consolidate power. I mean, Somalia, I think, is a really great example where you have a very decentralized society, a hyper-centralized central government. How secession work in that model, though? We should, yeah. if I may, just if I intervene, let's differentiate how we define a strong state. Um, a decentralized state could be strong enough. Very strong. Because you are yeah. redefining the state's and institution's relationship with the society. Now, in a case of Afghanistan and many other Middle Eastern societies, you have uh, you think that a strong state is a centralized state with a strong military police. Of course, all these all states that. are actually weak and brittle right. in certain ways. So, I mean, yeah, maybe strong should have scare quotes because uh, by definition, authoritarian regimes are inherently fragile right. and brittle in certain ways. So I. But how do you talk about secession then? That to me is the, the I mean, sort of limit question. And it ties into the question of the limits of the society. Because right. you may have a group that says democratically, I want no part of this thing. I don't want to live with those people. You know, like basically that's one of the basic questions of the state. Those people are not my people. And I don't care what their vote is. This is why, again, I find the reliance on democracy. So what as do you suggest thing. as an alternative? So I, look, I, I'm not I'm not here to present the be all end all answer to how all of this works. Ultimately, politics in real life is pretty challenging. Things don't work out the way you plan them. And a lot of countries will have to go through civil conflict and civil war, but you know, at various points in their existence, this idea that Egypt could have like an uprising, then just become a stable democracy and not have to go through any of the challenges. So, I mean, I'm very empathetic to the yeah. fact that there's not. So, so I, mean, I have a, I have an yeah. entirely separate thesis that I don't, you know, for another time. But, uh, you know, th that we're seeing all this, quote unquote, democratic backsliding around you know, in so many places around the world isn't a function of democracy at all. It's a function of state capacity in the bureaucracy. Is it in so many places where we saw, these, you know, cataclysmic shifts towards democracy in such a short period of time, like the state apparatus didn't shift. We know that bureaucracies don't change easily. So you have all these people in the deep state, right, who don't have any incentive to change, and nothing really has changed at that level. And plus, it's not sexy, right? Nobody wants to talk about, like, bureaucratic reform. You find political scientists, I want to find any of them who can talk about this issue and are well-versed in issues of, like, bureaucratic, bureaucratic reform. 
very few. Everyone studies democratic transitions but can't speak to the material of the state. And when those things don't change and how power is organized within the state apparatus, then you see it's easy to backslide because it's easy to slap these like dem democ democratic institutions and we all participate, but then the mechanisms of power, the mechanisms of how, you know, the power is executed. That's what really matters. So this means we're going to pivot now yep. to execution, yep. not yours, foreign policy. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you meant pivot. Okay. <laughs> Should we also bring maybe one or two? Yes, um... but we have a question from the audience. Okay. Oh, this is where I'm going to uh, pivot to our friend Aria Najat, who is in Washington, D.C. And Aria asks, um, what are your thoughts on the, and this is, a for, this is the foreign policy, so now we're going to pivot here. What are the thoughts on the loss of credibility of democracy and how to restore it, especially where the words and actions of a major democracy contradict itself? Okay. So I assume that we're referring to the U.S. here. I don't want to be too presumptuous. We could we regard. could presume that. But um, so, you know, my the way that I address that is, we have failed to live up to our own ideals. Um, we haven't actually promoted democracy, particularly in the Middle East and other regions. We've been better. Um, in Latin America, starting in the 80s after supporting right-wing dictators, we did start to put pressure on dictators and support democratic transitions also in East Asia, in the Philippines and South Korea and so forth. The Middle East stands out as an exception. We have been absolutely disastrous in the Middle East for complex reasons that uh, many of you will be familiar with. But, um, you know, part of it has to do with the whole, re the entire Middle East order, the U.S.-led architecture in the Middle East is built around authoritarian regimes. That is the way it's been built. So when I talk to policymakers, I'm not telling them to make small improvements or to do certain things better. I think we need a fundamental re reorientation of the entire way we do business in the Middle East. We have to rebuild our foundations, not around authoritarian regimes, but around an entirely different vision. And that's why I'm not, you know, I have no hope this is going to happen in the near term. My hope is that 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, when there is another Arab Spring, that there can be a new generation of policymakers that see this opportunity and use this moment of change to completely rethink from the ground up America's relationship with the Middle East. And that's what I know it's a long shot and, you know, it likely won't ever happen. But that that to me is at the heart of why the U.S. is not seen as credible when it talks about democracy in the Middle East, because it's not serious about democracy. So, you know, just I think I, and to pick up on Aria's question and drill down on this just a little more is she. So I know Aria and she works for um, she does democracy promotion in Washington. Yeah. And I was I, I was a democracy promoter once. I worked for USAID in, in one of the world's most authoritarian states at the time in Uzbekistan. I was spending millions of dollars doing democracy promotion at the same time when the United States was putting a military base in this country. And, um, you know, but I think the hope was that like greater U.S. engagement on the security sector would lead to greater democratic reforms. So when you're faced with a like a huge national security crisis like 9-11, okay, what do you do? Do you just ignore this country because they're not a democracy, but you have this vital strategic interest uh, that seemed quite urgent at the time? So you make a deal because this short-term need of your country to put a military base in this horribly authoritarian state um, trumps all of that. 
So those interests are very real. Yet at the same time, the U.S. upped its democracy promotion portfolio. So I got to spend a lot more money on NGOs and civil society and at that real operational level that she's talking about. And I think where the real disconnect, Shadi, comes in is where, when you're talking about democracy promotion, it's up here. It's at the State Department level. It's about how do you engage with countries at the very highest levels of diplomacy? How do you make decisions about military assistance? And so I, I bet the United States is still spending money on democracy promotion in Egypt. I bet you the United States is still, I know, spending a lot of democ on democracy promotion in Jordan. And, and a that's, lot of it's bullshit. It is, yeah. And that's what makes it look so hypocritical, yeah. right? It's like we we do these, we re deal with political leaders and civil society leaders and political parties and say, blah, blah, blah democracy, rah, 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 but at the highest level, politicians are working at cross purposes. Well, but, I, but, yeah. but so, I mean, and this is, uh, to even build on that, and, you know, your answer is like, what's the alternative, you know? And, and your answer to that was to uh, my question is like, wouldn't your policy prescriptions, you know, perhaps uh, at the limit in a lot of these states lead to more disorder? And- In the short run, and I'm I very say, open about that. Right. We have to accept the trade-off that, if you follow my prescriptions, there will be short to possibly medium term instability. I believe that the U.S. is it's strong a nice enough word, to though. absorb. No, it's not the U.S. though. I mean, it's the well, it's the societies. Look, it's the societies, and that's my point. This is but this the society, is, but 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 U.S. support for authoritarianism has rendered the Middle East. I mean, it's had such a destructive effect on the Middle East. So to say that sticking with our current policy is preferable, you know, we've deprived people of. You know, they've had to live under these regimes for a very long time, be killed, you know, suffer from civil wars that result from these strong but brittle authoritarian regimes. So that's the, the moral argument that the United States should do that. Um, yeah. But then to Jen's point also that there are but obviously civil society support. I'm so no, no, but, but Jen's point is that there are other interests then that actually those interests may include not having Jordan go through a period of like potential military instability for a while, that there's an actual coherent interest that there. Could, that could be the case, but authoritarian regimes are, they seem stable until they're not. So okay. the idea that you can just assume that the Jordanian- So democracies. <laughs> well, no, I think in the long term, authoritarian regimes are inherently right. more unstable than democracies. I mean, that's part, of, that's part of the argument, I think, at a very basic level, that you can never count on a country like Saudi Arabia or Jordan, because there's always a sense of, what will happen this is unsustainable and if you believe that there is something inherent where people don't like being dominated they want to have a say in their own lives even if it's not liberal then at some point there will be another mass uprising we should have learned this during the arab spring we said oh these regimes are stable then we saw how they weren't so our you know that that to me should does that make sense in terms yeah. of yeah, yeah. so so you know my i guess only question on this is uh are we confident and this is not a, a, a leading question are you confident um that uh the existing state structures and the limits to polities as it exists in the middle east currently correspond to enduring sustainable individual polities that will be able to sustain, you know, a democratic compromise? Are, are they, are they, or are you potentially also opening up, you know, and maybe you'd make the argument this is worth it, but opening up a, a whole mess of border realignments as groups say, I want no part of this. I want my own sort of polity in here. Um, and 
you know, is that just a cost? It's like, well, that's the cost of long-term stability and democratic stuff once this shit sorts itself out. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, but yeah. The, the, the question there is, the reason it's in the back of my mind is that, again, everyone talks about the beautiful democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. That is, it's the product of unbelievable bloodletting. So Unbelievable yeah. bloodletting. Well, I don't think we have to go through all that all over again, but you got to start the process sometime. So we're just going to keep on postponing the demo democratic evolution of these countries and say, well, not in this term. Well, I, you know, we're in power now and we don't want to have too much instability in the Middle East. Then we're going to keep on pushing this indefinitely. And I just, I think at a basic level, I also care about people in the region. Like we shouldn't lose sight of this. I know policymakers don't care about this, but so I don't make that argument to policymakers. Can I ask you just but, a question? And this is like an honest question. The way you just phrase that, it's like you're pushing off this evolution of democracy or you're pushing this off you're pushing is is democracy like inevitable what is it like it is it is there like a telos to this like you were just pushing it off pushing it off i think it is i think it is um a more natural end state than authoritarianism and that's why i think we've seen over the past uh, year or two how the authoritarian counter models have been utter failures i mean we have seen finally the weakness of China and Russia in very fundamental ways. And it's a reminder that China, I mean, not to get into like a whole different topic, but I'm not, I, I don't buy the rise of China argument because I don't believe an authoritarian regime can ever in the long run present a real definitive challenge to America. That is at the source of our comparative advantage. And I think people are seeing that. And I think that we'll, democracy will have more credibility when we have the courage of our convictions. When we talk about democracy, we're, oh, if, uh, when, like, we, oh, our democracy is dying. And Americans are saying, our democracy is so weak. And if Republicans win, there'll be fascism and all of that. We don't even know how to believe in our own ideas anymore. So, of course, other people are going to question our credibility. Um, and that's why I see this almost like there is a broader mission here. Could I have a question about, yeah, let's see, yeah, let's about foreign policy? Uh, this is probably you will regard this as exceptionally cynical. But for me, the American objective in the Middle East has been since probably 1945 to have our guy in power. And that almost every instance, the government has decided that our guy, whether it's the Saudi king or some member of the Egyptian junta in 1952-53, or whether it's the president of Afghanistan, the primary consideration is whether or not that person speaks English so that he can communicate with the leadership of the American mission at the time. Now, I am not going to object to the idea of some sort of effort to produce democracy at all sorts of levels of the system, but the guiding driving force of American foreign policy has been national security considerations and that there is no way in hell that you were going to block that and get around this aspiration to found our mind. Let me, let me question the premise. Has it actually led to stability? Has it I'm actually- I'm not talking no, about whether it led to no, stability. No, no. I'm talking I'm about what the policy has that, been. Right, and I'm, a, and I'm against that. I mean, it hasn't, I don't believe that supporting these authoritarian regimes has ultimately served America's national security interests. I wanna question that entire premise. Yes, but you're not making policy. That's well, the problem. I mean, that's, the whole, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the whole point. The whole point of writing and speaking is to challenge the way things are and to present an alternative model. 
And, you know, the rest is up to God. I mean, I can't control the outcomes. Shadi will but, be our first Muslim. But, but, I, but on a very basic level, the Middle East has been a drag on America for decades. Mm -hmm. If we look at terrorism, violent conflict, military coups, um, refugee crises that destabilized Europe during the Arab Spring. Can anyone look at this record and say this is a record of success? No, this is not a record of success. This is not a record where things are in America's national security interests, but that requires rethinking our starting premises. We have to go at the foundation. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, um, you know, arguments have to be made and then people can decide whether or not they like the arguments. But so for, for decades, the United States has been engaging Iran. I want to bring up the Iranian example because I think it's really important. I know you're not an Iranian expert, but you do study the, you know, the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, sure. So like I look at something like the JCPOA, right? And here, like it is an example of the United States dealing with a non-democratic state, a state that it has isolated, sanctioned. You know, I think it's a really great example of all like the foreign policy tools that Shadi Hamid would bring to the table, like whoo, whoo, whoo. Like, we're going to isolate Iran, yet nothing changes. Okay, that's okay, because, like... Well, we don't have any leverage with Iran because we don't have those... So the hope is that this engagement with this JCPOA is going to, number one, stop a, a nuclear program, which is a threat, and that threat is bigger to the United States than its status as a democracy, right? That trumps the United... That, the United, that will always trump American interests. Any country, it's not even the United States. If you're worried about like, will you be here tomorrow? And so then, and, and along those lines, if Iran isn't democratizing, then you take something like the JCPOA off the table because your first premise is that democracy trumps everything else and that this, is, this, this first principle is the most important thing. And we need to put this on the table and then we could talk. And that's deal. why one of my biggest criticisms of the Obama administration was prioritizing the nuclear deal with Iran. I saw this as the fundamental misguided priority, because once you put that as the priority, everything else gets subsumed under it. You need to make nice and stay friends with all the other dictators because you can't because you can't have too much more, you have to focus on this one goal and you can't focus too much on democracy. There's finite attention. And, you know, basically the exchange that we had with the Saudis was, okay, we know we're asking you a lot from you to support the Iran deal. We know you hate Iran and we're trying to get you to at least get on board tacitly. The expectation was that we couldn't also put too much pressure on them in terms of human rights and democracy because we want this other thing from them. So every so that's that had a distorting effect on the entire Obama administration policy. John Kerry, when he said Egypt was restoring democracy after a coup, which is what he actually said, what was he focused on? He was focused on a deal with Israel, Israel and the Palestinians and the Iran deal. And he's like, I can't worry about this democracy stuff because I got to make these deals. So you're right. But that was a decision that was made by Obama and people close to him. They made a choice to make the nuclear program the number one issue. Why was it? Why was that the number one issue that had to trump everything else? Individuals have agency. Obama could have chose differently on that. He decided to make that. We don't have to go into all the background as to why he made that decision. I've been seeing your hand for a while, and I want to make sure you jump in. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, can I ask my question now? Or do yeah, you? yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, just maybe it really, yeah. Yeah, uh, I've been enjoying the conversation. I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of anything, <laughs> but uh, it's been really rewarding to hear. And I just want to, so when I hear, uh, I know we're talking about foreign policy, but, and my question's more about. No, we can go back to some of the earlier stuff yeah, if you'd uh, like, yeah. Th- so I'm hoping, uh, my question's about like the idea of democracy and especially how Americans understand it. And I'm hoping it might connect also to like how we think about dem- democratic promotion abroad. So I think, most Americans, when they hear the word democracy, they conflate it with the people, or they think about democracy as like meaning the people. And so when you talk about things like democratic governance or being more democratic, they mean being more involved with the people. However, I think you're right to clarify what democracy is or these sort of procedural mechanisms or institutions, to use a, like a different term. And that when we talk about making things more democratic, we're talking about the, how do we utilize these particular institutions. And so, and then so we're talking and about more about sort of your idea of democratic minimalism and this uh, and it's reminded me a bit about uh, Tocqueville's like idea of like sort of uh, that democracy ultimately leads to this democratic despotism. So it's better to have sort of a limited democracy rather than a full on uh, democratic vision. And so uh, in thinking about uh, what you've been talking about with uh, like sort of the failure of leadership, my perception is it, there is like this uh, that our political leaders, to a certain extent, have a disdain for the people they represent. They mm. have, in my mm. opinion, they actually do already have democratic minimalism. They don't think the people are responsible enough to do anything on their own. And so they feel like it's in their, like as people in power, to do something about it. So. One, is that yeah. right? Well, or, to, cl- and, to clarify, uh, I mean, yeah. democratic minimalism is actually saying even if the people suck and have bad ideas, we have to honor Scare their quotes. preferences. So actually, it's the opposite. Even if, you, even if you have profound disagreements with your own people because you think they're deplorable Trump supporters, that you shouldn't look down on them because they're voting for a reason. They're making decisions for reasons that make coherent sense to them in their own hearts and minds. And, you know, we shouldn't use false consciousness arguments and say, oh, they don't, if they only had the right information, then they'd vote the right way, which is very dismissive and patronizing. They only promoted democracy the right way. <laughs> yeah, or, um, yeah, so if, so for example, uh, where was I going with this? But yeah, I just want to clarify that because um, I, want to, I want to have respect for people's agency and I don't want to come up with all these other reasons like, oh, Russian interference, that's why Trump won. No, Trump won because people voted for Trump. And through our accepted mechanisms, he became the president legitimately. So let's not look disdainfully at our own people. Just like um, a lot of the secular elites in Egypt looked in a very disdaining way um, towards the, you know, the pious masses. Like, oh my God, this is what they're voting for? We can't let them vote too much. Like, this is what happened. So there has to be a basic respect for the people. Because without that, you're always going to look down on your fellow citizens. So I think that's really, really important. Did someone else, I would just want to make sure that we're not missing. Yep. Uh, Shadi yeah. Hamid, the populist, right? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Well, thanks for coming to Pitt. Um, love Pittsburgh. And I think that's a lot of great stuff to share. You love Pittsburgh too? I'm from here and I've been at the university since my undergrad. And uh, you know, it's a very special place. I think there's a lot of great people here like Jen, she's a great professor. But uh, like, just to give a little bit of background for myself, I'm the son of an Iraq war vet. 
uh, when I was six, my dad was deployed, and that was v very much the political formation event for myself. And uh, as I've grown up, you know, that's informed my political consciousness. And I think we're dancing around a certain question here, and it's that we have the 2009 financial crisis. We have, uh, we can't even get the ACA website to work for three months after it launches. We can't handle a pandemic. We're very much dealing with a crisis of the elite. And we're all elites here. You know, we're getting master's degrees, have positions of uh, positions of importance in different institutions like, like Brookings or, you know, the University of Pittsburgh. And I think the issue is that we do have too much democratic minimalism. It's the fact that our elite has trouble formulating effective policy, and we see this in many different areas from domestic to the international scene. And uh, like, I think one of the problems is, is, is that, you know, like in the past, uh, the past primaries, if the people who didn't vote in this country, uh, they're, they're, that counted as a political party, they would have won. I think we need to expand democracy in this country. And uh, there's like a lot of very, very structural issues with that. Like for, uh, like, for like example, like the Supreme Court isn't the most democratic institution, and now it is very much being extremely invasive uh, to every woman in America's uh, like private privacy. And so I think like we have to have more confidence in the average person, and we have to open up our various institutions uh, to more democratic input. Like I like, Congress doesn't have war power authority anymore. You know, they did, uh, like, you know, we haven't declared war since World War II, yet we've, we're in so many different wars all over the place. So I think, I think we kind of have to hand the reins off to the people, and it has to be a more expansive conversation what democracy is, yeah. especially when it comes to decision-making. And it goes even beyond that to, like, I think something we've been dancing around with a little bit is also, like, democracy in the workplace. And, uh, you know, I think that's enough there for ranting. Yeah, well, so the Supreme Court, great question. Supreme Court, though, one could argue, and I guess I would argue, um, with, the Do with the Dobbs decision actually did return the choices on abortion to the people on the state level. So would that actually be in accordance with what you're saying, that if we respect the ordinary voters, we actually tell them we're not going to have the Supreme Court decide for you. We're going to let each state through their electorate decide. Well, I, I don't agree with that because when you look at like gerrymandered districts from various states, like Pennsylvania has a very gerrymandered uh, like state electoral map, and uh, in terms of state governments, and you look at like these popular mandates in states like uh, Kentucky and Kansas that are very much conservative states, yet their abortion, uh, like their their abortion votes they had in this past November, they failed. Uh, people rejected. That's good. Yeah. So that went so, back to the so people. That, yeah. That, that kind of supports like my idea of more democracy for people instead of having. These uh, sick people in rows, uh, you know, dictate healthcare for women. You hand it back to the people, and it turns out the people end up making the right policy decisions. But what if they make the wrong policy decisions? Then what? Well, I have. Well, then I, I have implicit. It, it all depends what you think is wrong. Right. And so I have implicit trust that you know. But you know, like, do I think that you know? Would you, would, if, if it was voted like the rap war, if every person in America had to vote say yes or no, uh, even if everyone said yes, I bet you know six months later, 2004, 2005, everyone would say no, it's packed up and leave. And you know, I think. So you trust that the people in the end will come to their senses and make the right decision? Well, 
Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think I think there's ways you can build institutions to ensure that outcomes through, you know, not just uh, expanding democratic norms, but also building up institutions like education. We have a very smart, we have a very smart people. They're going to be able to make better decisions for themselves. But we've seen a whole lot. We've seen the education system be hollowed out. Do smart people make better decisions? Is that actually something that we can empirically verify? But I think that also, you know. There's a reason that there was a book published called The Best and the Brightest. It was meant to be ironic because sometimes the best and the brightest are the ones who are most destructive because they're in love with their, um, because they're, they're, they're not as self-critical or, or self-aware because they're very elite and smart and they're like, we have the answer. I, I don't even think it's like basically uh, if people are smart or not, is if people have, are able to get the same, get the, get the proper information, they're not feeling Right, proper information, but that goes back to this question that if only we give people the right information, they'll vote the right way. Well, if, well not even if the proper information is available, like uh, maybe in the sense of like not framing, uh, like I think that we're in a very right wing country. I think both parties are very much sit on like the political spectrum, somewhere to the right of center. And uh, I think the discourse in like our educational system is also skewed that way. And, uh, you know, I think we have it's very much the, the framing of every conversation in this country from education to information available, you know, uh, and media and entertainment very much skewed that way. And I think that comes down to the way these institutions are set up. Uh, but, you know, I think that's. Let, let me just let me just ask you. Uh one other one, because I, I think you, you hit on something on the Supreme Court, and I, I feel like uh, I just want to know exactly what you think about it. Um, you know, at the limit, the courts are not supposed to be democratic. They're supposed to be ensuring some basic set of rights and accordance of laws that are passed. But there is something also known as like judicial activism, and there is this idea that, you know, certain things, certain decisions get decided there that, uh, you know, actually countermand. So this was, I think, the abortion back and forth thing was like, well, uh, it was uh, a decision that should have been democratically done, but wasn't, right? And it was declared a right, and, and there you have it. You know, what, what's, what's interesting to me on that is, um, you know, you're talking about institutions. Um, certain institutions are anti-democratic, need to be anti-democratic for the better functioning of the whole, but that tension is very hard to resolve. I mean, I'm just, you know, we were talking about it before, uh, you know, the, the, I don't know if you're following what's going on in Israel right now, you know, the Supreme Court's going to, to uh, have a lot of its uh, uh, remit removed. But then I've been reading a lot about it and going back and forth in the controversy. I'm not an expert on it, um, but it is interesting how activist the Israeli Supreme Court has been. And that gets really to the core of the question of democratic will. And I think Israel provides a very complex and difficult question because, um, you know, uh, there's an article just yesterday or so, I think, in, in commentary, uh, Elliot Abrams was writing this big thing that, you know, American Jews see what's happening in Israel and are, uh, uh, you know, horrified, very much horrified because it's not living up to a liberal ideal, whereas Israeli uh, sort of voting public is much less committed to the same liberal ideal that American Jews are and see more like a Jewish democracy as a priority rather than a democratic uh, liberal democracy. So I don't know, you know, I, I'm just throwing all of that out there just because I think it, it illustrates a lot of this well, stuff. Well, to this deep state question. 
I think I, I'll stick to the Supreme Court. I'll keep this on the side. But, like, you know, judicial review, not in the Constitution. We can go back and change that. You know, I think one of the things is in this country, you know, the founding fathers are kind of, uh, you know, mystified to a sense. You know, these people were arsenic wigs and powerful cases. They're not, they're not saints. I think we can go back and change things. You know, we have the oldest uh, Constitution in the North Atlantic. Um, but, you know, I think we have to look and see in terms of protecting people's rights if, you know, having, you know, a court that can have the potential to be extremely activist is even a good thing. And, uh, yeah. But doesn't this get to the point that, like, the U.S., like, the democratic system in the United States for all of the flawed outcomes that you have pointed to, because what you've pointed to are outcomes that are good or bad. And I think that contrasts what Shadi is saying is that we don't care about the outcomes, we care about the process and the process. Yeah, we should be agnostic about outcomes. We should outcomes. not so care my about the outcomes. Would be to completely avoid the conversation of whether something produces good or bad outcomes. Does that make, yeah. And so it's the durability of these institutions over, you know, almost how how many years now? The United States, 250, 250, we're coming up, right? Um, is that is what, Matt, and that's the durability of these institutions to maintain, you know, albeit imperfect democracies, that's what matters. So in many ways, the United States, the, the democracy in the United States is actually a model, despite what we've heard about for the past four, six years about how it's all ending and this is so, you know, democracy is dying in the United States. I think what we, we should be taking away from the past five or six years is how uh, resilient democratic systems are in this country, yes. despite... Um, and but but the United States, when it promotes democracy, unlike other countries in the world. So I'm doing a lot of research on like how the Soviets exported their institutions around the mm -hmm. world. The Soviets exported the Soviet Union, like Arab nationalism, like a lot of the problems that you see across the Arab world. You can trace those to like a lot of Soviet institutional designs. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan had a lot of Soviet institutions. When America promotes democracy, America's often agnostic about what shape that democracy takes, right? It's local context matters. You're not gonna have, America doesn't say, okay, here's a bill of rights, right? Here's separation of powers, here's federalism. It does sometimes. Sometimes, but it's not the same yeah. everywhere. It's yeah. context dependent. Yeah. It puts its finger on a scale, but it, you, you won't say like, that's the American system. Yeah, that's, yeah. Right? Right, mm -hmm. and that's right. And but maybe maybe that's a problem, if we think about the endurance of American institutions. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought this up because I see the last six years as like has reinforced my belief in America. Like I, that's like it goes back to like I'm the opposite of a lot of people in America. I'm at like peak bullishness in terms of where I think America stands in regards to its place in the world, um, as I mentioned, decline of China, Russia, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, we were tested and our democracy was resilient when it there is a democratic mechanism to change a constitution. So if enough Americans want to change a constitution, they can do that. They just need a supermajority, which is difficult. But the mechanism is there. But I also, I like, our, it's worked out pretty well in the end is what I'm trying to say, that um, I think especially coming from an immigrant background, I think America's kind of awesome. And that's what I would like to infuse more in our debates about America. And I think there's a danger of losing sight of that and thinking that our whole system should change and change a constitution, change how we actually orient our country. But it's brought us to where we are now. And I think where it's brought us is pretty damn good. It's not perfect, 
but let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Like we have to be careful here because when you mess with a system that's actually worked fairly well, you don't know exactly what is going to happen. You can't always anticipate the third, the second and third order consequences. So there is a risk involved here with trying to reimagine American institutions in this potentially radical way. So, so on, on that note, it's three. It yeah. is three. We have gone for two hours. And on that happy note, yeah. I just want to make one final plug to son of Pennsylvania. That was that was riveting, Shaddy. <laughs> I really do hope there's a Senate run in the future. Oh, you think that? I think I, I just really, because Oz failed doesn't wow. mean just because wow. I, I was hoping for a Democrat Shaddy Muslim versus a Republican Oz Muslim would have been the best showdown yeah. in Pennsylvania okay. history. Well, it started here. So today. four years from now, we could ask Oz for you know a rematch. We're we'll hoping take all for your that's... emails. This is the first mailing list for the Shadi. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, fellas. This was thank lovely. You. Thank you, thank Jen. You. Thanks, everyone. Yes. Thanks for thanks. this. All right, thanks. thanks.